Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, Paul starts his conclusion of the letter, really a summing up, and we'll look today at 10 through 13. Let me read the text to you this morning. This is the the word of God through the Apostle Paul, summing up the main point of his letter, and really the summary of the last half of his letter. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm firm. The title of today's sermon is Winning the Spiritual Battle. That's what we want. We want to win the spiritual battle. There's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to spiritual warfare. Much misunderstanding in the world and even within Christianity. Some people want to suppress the truth and not even admit that there is a spiritual world, that there is any kind of warfare going on out there. They deny Satan Even if they believe in God, they deny that there's true evil forces working in the world. And so they deny Satan, the demons, and all their efforts that are being put forth in the world. Others have developed mystical or superstitious ways to try to win the spiritual battle. All kinds of strange things. uh, Fighting the devil with holy water, crucifixes. Some evangelicals think that we can somehow bind Satan. And that therefore he can't do any harm against us if we can bind him up as if we had the power to do that. You can even go to spiritual warfare school now. And there's a school in California that has a 13-step all-inclusive process to take dominion of a city away from Satan. This course will teach you how to wrestle with Christian witchcraft, how to break word curses, hexes, vexes, and spells, conquering water spirits, and battling the Jezebel spirit. Now, what you won't find in that course of 13 different things is anything about Ephesians 6, anything about the armor of God, anything about what Paul's saying right here is the battle and how to fight it. We don't have to go outside of Scripture. Many of those things are sinfully even participate in. But we have right here the Word of God telling us how to fight it. These 10 verses, 6, 10 through 20, tells us what we need to know about fighting the spiritual battle. Now, there are other places that fill in for us that we'll cross-reference, but this is the main text on spiritual warfare. How do you win? Not just how do you fight, but how do you win? Well, this is the key. This passage is a summary, encapsulating the whole idea of the Christian life. Everything he's been talking about since chapter 4, verse 1, and even all of that was based on what he talked about in the first three chapters, which was the the theology. But in 4.1, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called by God. If you're a believer, then God's called you. Then God's done something in your life. And you ought to live it out. You ought to live in such a way that lines up with what you say that you are. This is such an important passage in Scripture. Many love this text. They love the armor of God. Famous preachers throughout church history have preached many, many sermons on this passage. The Puritan William Gurnall, he wrote a classic on spiritual warfare called The Christian in Complete Armor. Just these 10 verses, 
He wrote 1,500 pages of a Puritan book. You'll have to pick that up if you want to go into more depth than we're going into today. John Newton, the famous pastor, we just sang one of his songs. John Newton, pastor and author of Amazing Grace, said, If I might read only one book beside the Bible, I would choose this book, The Christian in Complete Armor, because he knew the, the battle was fierce and sermons on this text are helpful. Gurnall, in his book, he said, In heaven we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory. But here, the pieces of armor are specified to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, else we are not true soldiers of Christ. They're that important. We'll go into all the details next week of what the armor actually is. But Paul's preparing us. He's setting that up in verses 10 through 13. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher from the last century, preached 66 sermons on these 10 verses, 10 through 20. And then he turned in them two-volume book set that you can buy and read. Don't worry, we're not going to go 66 sermons through it. Now, if Charismatics and even Roman Catholics give too much credit to Satan, many of us more conservative, biblical, expository Christians don't think about that enough. We don't think about the spiritual battle enough. We kind of ignore it. It's not, it's not all that comfortable to think about. It's not all that fun to consider. Or if we do acknowledge the demonic realm, we end up blaming the demonic realm for our own sins, for our own faults, for our own mistakes. Well, here in this text, Paul's going to show us four basic truths. Four basic truths that you need to know about winning the spiritual battle. Before he even goes through what to put on as you're in the battle, or right before you're about to fight, he's got to give you some basic foundational truths. So he's going to answer really four questions. What, how, why, and when. Those are the four points of the sermon today that we're going to go through. So first of all, what? What in verse 10? Number one, he tells us, be made strong in Christ. Be made strong in Christ. He starts off by saying, finally. With this word, finally, he's, he's telling us, I'm coming to the conclusion. I'm wrapping things up. I'm summarizing all that I've been teaching you here. This is extremely important for the Christian life. Listen up, he says. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. It's passive here. Be made strong. Be made strong in Christ. It's not your strength that he's saying, out of your own heart be strong. He's not saying, out of your own physical strength be strong. He's not saying, increase your strength. But no, the power to fight spiritual battles comes from Christ. He is our Lord. He is the one that we have to rely upon. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's already won the victory. And then we have to fight in the daily battle until he comes back. You got to stop depending on yourself, Paul says. You got to be made strong in the Lord. Be in the Lord, first of all, and then be made strong in the Lord as you grow more and more to be like Him. This phrase, in the Lord, is where we get the power to wage war against Satan, to fight Satan, to really defend ourselves from getting into temptation and sin. It's from the Lord. And that means that you're united with Christ. In the Lord means that that's where you're found. That's where you are. That's where you live. That's where your life is. You're united with Him. You have a union with Christ. A true union. Similar to the, to the marriage union where man and woman come together in the marriage union. Well, we have a 
physical and spiritual union with Christ. We're physically owned by him. We are his. We are his slaves, as we looked at last week. But spiritually, we can't be broken away from him. We can't be taken away from him. He is our master. He is our Lord. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul's already touched on some of this. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he, God, made us alive together with Christ. Christ died and was brought back on the third day. He was resurrected. He was made alive. We were dead in sins, and then we were made alive when we were born again, when God changed our heart, when God regenerated us. And Paul says, by grace, you have been saved. It's not by your own works. You didn't get into Christianity and true faith by your own works, and you can't fight this battle by your own works now that you are saved. And verse 6 there, 2-6, he says, and raised us up with him. We're with him. We, we died with him. Our sin was taken away. And, and we're raised with him. And we're seated. He said, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now, we're sitting right here. You're sitting right here in this church. Spiritually speaking, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm. You're with him. He's in you. You're in him. That's what it means to be united with Christ. You try to fight this battle without Christ. If you try to fight it not even being a Christian, you're going to lose every time. You don't even realize there is a battle if you're an unbeliever. For believers, though, we know there's a battle. And we've got to rely upon the Lord's strength. We've got to be made strong in the Lord. And Paul says it a different way in the rest of this verse. And in the strength of his might. Be made strong in the Lord and in his strength, his supernatural power. The source of the Lord's own strength, it comes from him. God's power is great. God's power is greater than we can even imagine. His omnipotence, that's the theological term. Omni meaning all, potence meaning power. He's all powerful. He, he has power to do whatever he wills, whatever he wants. He's able to do all his holy will, all that he pleases, all that he purposes to do. That's the God that we have to rely on to help us fight. He does whatever is consistent with his nature. Daniel chapter 4, it says that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So whether it's the spiritual realm, angels, or whether it's upon the earth, God does according to his will. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can thwart God's plans. No one can mess with God's power. No one can keep God from doing what he wants to do. Do you want to depend on yourself? Or do you want to depend on God to help you fight this battle? I don't want to depend on myself. I've got nothing. My best isn't even close to what God, to what Christ has. It's his power. You can't stand on your own. It's when you get prideful and think, I can do this. I've got this. I haven't sinned like that in a while. That's when you're going to be most under attack. That's when you're going to fall. The prideful stumble and fall, the Bible says. Those who are lifting themselves up will be pulled down. And God said those who are humble will be lifted up. The exact thing that Paul prayed back in chapter 1, verse 19. He talked about God's power. Look at 119. He, he's praying that these readers, these Christians would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power. This is the most extensive word he can use to explain God's power here in Greek. Surpassing greatness of his power 
toward us who believe. We need to know that, he says. We need to remember that. We need to rely upon that. That's how he concludes 1 Corinthians. He says, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Very similar language. He sums it all up into one sentence there. Stand firm. Be in the faith. Stand firm. Act like men. Be strong. Be on the alert. So that's number one. We have got to be made strong in Christ. That's what we're to do to win the battle. But how? What does that mean? We've explored a bit of it, but specifically, what are we supposed to use? How do we become strong in the Lord's strength? Well, the answer to how is use God's resources. We see this at the beginning of verse 11. Use what God has given you. Put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Put on what God has already given you to put on. We saw similar language, and I think this this links up good back in chapter 4, verse 24. He says, put off the old self. He said that. Put off the old self. And in 4.24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Put on something. And he's going to describe what the armor of God is later, but but you've got to put on something new that you didn't have. You didn't have this when you were an unbeliever. Now you have it as a believer. Use it. It's not your strength. It's God's strength. It's Christ's strength. And here's how you use it. You put it on. You've got to do something. This is not the Christian life where you sit on the couch and just hope you're going to be godly. You do nothing. You just watch TV all day and say, I'm a Christian. I'm growing in the faith. This is great. You know, I signed this card when I was 13 and now I'm 45 and I don't even know the Bible and I, I don't go to church. But hey, this is great. I'm saved. That's not the Christian life. Put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. You got to know what it is. You got to put it on. What is this word armor? Well, in Greek, it's panoply. The complete equipment of a heavy armed soldier. The full armor. Every piece that they would wear in ancient times. He'll give some details on that in the next passage, but it's what a Roman foot soldier would wear into battle. What a Roman foot soldier would need to put on before he went into battle in the legions. He would have seen soldiers all the time. Paul, Where is Paul when he writes this letter? He's in Rome. Probably chained to a guard, under house arrest. There's soldiers around the house keeping him there. He's waiting for trial with the emperor. He's, he's probably going into the emperor's house or palace. He's seeing soldiers everywhere. He's seen soldiers on the way to Rome. He traveled with the soldiers on a ship on the way to Rome as they brought prisoners. He knows what the armor looks like. And he's saying, God has armor too. And God has given you some armor to use. Put it on. And panoply is the full armor. Not just a little piece here and there. Oh, you know, I like that one. I'll put that one on. But I'm strong enough to do everything without the rest. Put on the full armor of God. Use it. Do something with it. And at the basic root is going to be knowing Scripture. You can't use something you don't know. And all the pieces of the armor are going to relate in some way to Scripture or how Scripture influenced your salvation. You've got to know the armor pieces. You've got to put them 
on. And it's the armor of God. The armor that God supplies. The resources that he's given you. The very armor he gives every genuine believer. You can never say, you know what, I don't have what I need to fight this battle. I lose over and over. God, you haven't given me what I needed. Paul's assuming you already have it. If you're a believer, you have it. It's like, do I have the Holy Spirit or not? The question is, are you a Christian or not? you have faith alone in Christ alone or not? Have you repented of your sins? Have you had a change of heart? Has that been shown by good fruit? Then you have the armor of God. God's conquered. God has gone out. He has ridden through the desert in his chariot, it says in the Psalms. He has gone out. He has conquered. He has conquered our enemy at the cross. Now, ultimately, the enemy will be thrown into the lake of fire. So it's not quite that time yet. The devil is still prowling around, but he has dealt the death blow on the cross. Satan has no power over a believer unless we give it to him, unless we choose not to put on God's armor. And God's already conquered, so why wouldn't we take up the conqueror's armor and use it? Don't go through life without God's armor on. We've got to wear it all the time. It's like the Puritan said, when we go to sleep, when we wake up, when we walk through life, you know when you're going to sin is when you're letting your guard down. When you're not ready for battle. When you're tired, when you're weak, when you're sick. When you're especially challenged in life in many ways. What good is that going to do though to not use what God has given you? And don't go to mystical and Gnostic type of practices to fight this battle. You have what you need. Why don't you go to these strange books and prophecies and things that aren't in Scripture? They're not even indicated that it will happen this way in the New Testament. Reading books about how to fight this spiritual battle, they don't have any basis in Scripture. Some will even amount to certain types of witchcraft, mind reading. We had a member tell us that at another church that she was at, they were trying to read people's minds to help them fight spiritual battle. There's this idea that you walk circles around people when you're praying. Special formulas that you're supposed to say. Special incantations. I don't see any of that in this passage. I say take up what God has given you and use it. Number three, why? Why? Oh, we're going to spend some time on this one. Why do we have to do this? Because Satan attacks you. It's that simple. There is a real spiritual being named Satan, and he's attacking you. If you're an unbeliever, he's controlling you. You don't realize it. If you're a believer, you realize he's there, and he is always attacking you. Some days the, the battle is more fierce than others, but he's always there. And so Paul says, you put this on, you put the armor of God on, and the rest of verse 11, so that, so he's given us the purpose here, so that you'll be able to stand firm. You'll be able to stand and resist and not move. The word here means to stand your ground. It's used in scripture to denote that which lasts and is stable, not subject to change or decay. You're not given one inch. You're not given one centimeter to the devil when he attacks. You've got to stand firm, Paul says. That's why you put it on. It's a defensive position. It's not offensive. We're not commanded to go and conquer and take dominion. We're not told to go and beat Satan down into the pit and chain him up. That's Jesus in the book of Revelation. 
We're not told to do that. We're told just to stand our ground and not budge. We already have been given a great place in Christ. Now don't move back. Don't go back. The position of a believer is, is one that's standing firm in the faith. That's what Christ has already done for you. He's placed you right here. Now stand firm and don't budge. What does that mean to budge? What does that mean to go back? It means to sin. That means to fall into temptation and sin. Commit the various acts of sin, whether it's in the mind or the body. At its worst, it's running from the faith. Apostatizing. Turning away from Christ. You read through the book of Hebrews, and it's always telling them not to go back. Not to go back. Don't go back to Judaism. Today is the day. Don't go back. Don't go back. Look what happened in the Old Testament. Don't turn around. Stand. Stand against what? The schemes of the devil. Here's our enemy. Paul wants you to know something about the enemy. He's scheming. He's the one we fight, this devil. He's the one we wrestle with. He wants you to know who your enemy is. That's important to victory. You got to know who you're fighting against. One of the problems in battle is when you try to harm your own side, your own people. You don't know that they're on your side. You think they're the enemy. Well, here's the enemy. It's the devil. God's not your enemy. People get mad at God. It's, it's kind of hilarious when people say, well, they, they won't believe in Christ because they're mad at God. He's not your enemy. He is if you're going to spend eternity in hell. But right now, as long as you breathe, he's the only way of salvation. God's not your enemy. Other believers aren't your enemy. Even if they make you mad, even if they're in the same church as you, they're not your enemy. Unbelievers really aren't your enemy. Even though they persecute you, even though governments come against Christians, that's really not your enemy. Here's your enemy, Satan. Satan, the devil. He's got 19 different names in Scripture. You need to know these because the names tell you about him. Who is this devil? Is he a little guy with a pitchfork and a red tail and red horns? Just a make-believe character out of the Middle Ages? This is in the Bible. The accuser. He's named the accuser because he opposes believers before God. He goes before God just like he did with Job. And he accuses you of being a sinner. Of not acting Christ-like. You can just imagine the, the way he twists things. Now how could you save that guy? Look at what he's doing. Look at how he's sinning. How could you save her? Look how many times she has fallen. He's the accuser. Of course, we have a mediator. We have Christ who mediates. He's our intercessor. He's our defense attorney. Satan is also called the adversary because he's against God. He's called Beelzebul. Beelzebul, which means ball of the high place. He is the ultimate God that they worshipped in pagan societies around Israel. His name is also Balial, which means worthless, vile, wicked. He's called the devil, which means slanderer. He's called the dragon because of how destructive he is in Revelation. He's called the enemy, which means the opponent. He's the opponent of God. He's the opponent of believers. He's called the father of lies because lies come from him. They originate from him. Every lie you've ever told came from Satan. He's called the evil one in Scripture because he's intrinsically evil. Created good but fell before Adam and Eve fell. Satan fell. And so all evil since then has come from him. He's the God of this world because he influences the world's thinking. He's a liar because he perverts and twists the truth. He's a murderer because he leads people to eternal punishment and death. 
He's the prince of the power of the air. We saw that back in Ephesians 2, verse 2. Certainly unbelievers are not under the power of Satan. Not all of them, right? Well, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, you, talking to believers, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. That means dead. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't bring yourself back to life. God had to do it. We read about that. In which you formerly walked. That means, walked means lived. You formerly lived before you got saved according to the course of this world. You went right along with the world. Also, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Those who disobey Christ, those who disobey the gospel. They're walking right along with Satan's plans. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's a roaring lion, the one who destroys. He's a ruler and prince of demons, the leader of the fallen angels. He's the ruler of this world, Jesus says. Right now, God has allowed Satan to do certain things in the world. But he is on the leash. You read the book of Job and you see that, as Martin Luther said, Satan is God's Satan. He's on a leash and God's not going to let him do more than he's allowed to for a time. Ultimately, Satan will be punished forever and ever. He's called Satan, which means adversary. He's called the serpent of old, which means he's the deceiver in the Garden of Eden. Not just a little snake, but actually Satan empowering whatever kind of snake-like being that was. He's also called the tempter because he steers people to sin. This is your enemy. There's all the names mentioned in Scripture for him. The enemy of every believer. And he has schemes, Paul says. Probably better translated strategies. This is a military setting that Paul's given us here in Ephesians 6. You better put on your armor. You better get ready for battle. Because this person, this being that I just described, has schemes, has strategies of warfare. Many of them. We don't even know all of them. He's crafty. He's deceitful. Ephesians 4.14. Paul says the reason that God gave teachers, the reason that God gave pastor elders, the reason that there's teaching and training going on so that everybody can build one another up. And in 4.14, one of the reasons that's going on in the church, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. So where does bad doctrine come from? Men tricking people. Where does that come from? By craftiness and deceitful scheming. Same word there. It's the only other place it's used in the Bible. The scheming, the strategies. They're deceitful. They're strategies. Satan's crafty. He desires to lead you astray. His goal is to get you to sin. And he is very crafty. He wants to lead you into a trap. You don't even know you're headed there. Suddenly you look up and you're in this trap. And how do you get out? It hits you from all different sides. Often we're going to fall in situations like that. We're going to sin. He once had complete control over you. Ephesians 2. You walked according to his plans. He had control. Now as a believer, he doesn't have control over you. But he would love to get back into your life. He would love to come back and spend some time with you and get you to sin. Paul's already warned us about this throughout the letter. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, he says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray 
from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You ought to have a pure mind focused on Christ. And Paul's worried about these Corinthians and all Christians, really, because we can be led astray, just like Eve was. 2 Corinthians 2.11 So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes. A different word for schemes, but the same idea there. We don't need to be ignorant of his schemes. You've got to know the battle that you're getting into. Whenever people go to war, they study the enemy and the strategies of the enemy and the strengths of the enemy and the weaknesses of the enemy as well as their own strengths and weaknesses. Well, Satan's strength is that he is a spiritual being who can do powerful things. And if we are not saved in Christ, we can't stand against him. But if we are, we can stand. But we need to know his strategy. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Watch out, he says. Don't, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be drunk with drugs. Don't even live a lifestyle that makes you lazy and not paying attention. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's prowling around you. He's like a lion that's looking at you like a tasty meal. Are you going to be his meal today? Are you going to be the meal that he wants to consume and will consume? Peter says, but resist him, firm in your faith. And knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Other Christians are standing firm. We need to be like them. Other Christians are praying for us. We're praying for them. Now, sometimes people think Satan can read your mind. And so you have to not let him read your mind. I don't even know how that's possible to not let uh, Satan read your mind. But he can't do it anyway. So don't worry about it. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. Only God knows all things. Satan can't read your mind. He doesn't know what you're thinking. You can have sinful thoughts, of course. Satan doesn't know that until you act upon them. Then he knows. I could even imagine he's taking notes. But he doesn't read your mind. In in Job 1 and 2, he was wrong about Job's motives. He didn't know Jesus' thoughts in the temptation. He's never said in Scripture to read human minds and know all things. He's not like God. Only God can know all things. But Satan, he tempts you either according to the common temptations that we all struggle with, or you've sinned before and you've fallen before over and over, and he's going to keep coming back to you with that. It's worked in the past. If a strategy works, you keep using it. He sees where you've lost the battle before. The more you give in, the more he's going to tempt you with that. That's why it's important to break those patterns. It's important to get even biblical counseling if you need help breaking those sinful patterns. Well, I mentioned earlier that some people say Christians can bind Satan. Is that a real thing? Binding Satan? No, we've already looked at only Jesus can do that. He has already, in a sense, bound him. He will finally bind Satan when he comes back. Every time somebody's saved, he he binds Satan from having an influence over that person. Jesus talks about going into the strong man's house and binding the strong man so he can take out the treasure. The treasure is us, the believers who are being saved. But ultimately, it'll be when Christ returns, described in Revelation 20. There's no commands for us to bind Satan. We're almost putting ourselves in the place of God if we say we can bind Satan. So we shouldn't say that or think that. Well, Paul goes on here. 
There's Satan, but there's more than just one spiritual being. Verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He's reminding us it's not against people. Literally in the Greek, it's blood and then flesh. But we're so used to saying flesh and blood from other verses that they flipped it in our English translations. It's not against people. It's not a physical battle. We're not battling against false teachers physically, unbelievers physically. We're not to start a crusade. We're not to rise up as Christians and overturn the government. Sure, go vote. Make it a biblically informed vote. Vote your conscience according to Scripture. Don't vote for the suppression of Christianity in America. Don't vote for the killing of children in the womb. Don't vote for those who support children having sex changes or pedophilia. But even after you vote, remember, it's a spiritual battle. And if your candidate wins or doesn't win, it doesn't mean that the spiritual battle has been won or lost. Your own spiritual battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not called to make an army of Christians and go fight flesh and blood. But it's against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, he says, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan doesn't work alone. He can't be everywhere and he doesn't know everything, but he has an army of these demons working for him. And again, modern culture has covered up the real action of these demons. We don't know what they look like, but they're called demons, fallen angels, evil spirits, unclean spirits. And they do Satan's work. They do exactly as he wants them to do. They're his assistants. They're his helpers. They're his workmen, his henchmen. In the book of Revelation, it says that the dragon's tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. So roughly a third of the angels fell with Satan. Now John said in Revelation that there's myriads of myriads of angels. So worshiping God in Revelation 5 are myriads and myriads of good holy angels. Countless numbers. We try to do the math, that's billions of angels. Worshiping God, that's two-thirds. But a third fell with Satan. We don't know the exact number, but that's a lot. That's a lot. There's, there's more demons roaming the earth, in other words, than there probably is people upon the earth. And they're everywhere. Too many to count. They're all doing Satan's biddings. And they're the ones we're to do battle with. This is not battle with flesh and blood. It's battle with demonic spirits. Who are these spirits? Well, he calls them rulers. That's one grouping. He's already spoken of that twice in Ephesians. It signifies primacy and power. So rulers are mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, Rulers over Persia, demonic forces that sort of have control of a whole government. There's also powers, Paul says. Exousius uh, in Greek, it denotes freedom to act. They have authority. They have the authority given to them to go and do evil. Now this third ranking that he says, it's interesting. It's the only place in all of scripture that this word is used. It's not seen in any ancient writing for 200 years after, almost 300 years after the Bible was written. It's translated in the NASB as world forces. Cosmo kratoras. You probably heard cosmo, cosmos, meaning universe or world. Kratoras indicating power. A cosmic power, a world force. A being that can control 
things in the world. But this is plural. Jesus did say that Satan was the ruler of this world, that he would be cast out. But this is plural, talking about angels again, a ranking of angels. And they operate in the realm of darkness, of power, of sin, of evil. Now later, when they are used, when this word gets used, it's used for pagan deities, false gods. So if it was in use during Paul's day, and we just don't have any manuscripts laying around of Greek pagan deities and the people who followed them, it would have indicated a false god, the ones that they worshipped. Did you know there's not really any other gods but the one true God? And do you know that the pagan gods mentioned aren't actually gods, but they're demons being worshipped? Sometimes we forget that, but it's said over and over in Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32, they sacrificed to demons who were not to God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Psalm 106, Israel served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. It's all over the Old Testament. Who are the false gods that people worship today? Who are those false gods? They're demons. They're these world forces, these cosmic powers. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. No, Paul says, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, what they sacrifice to, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Don't go to a pagan worship service. If you know it's pagan, and something's going on there that's ungodly, and they're worshiping something that's not the one true God of the Bible, don't go and have communion with them, fellowship. It's pagan. It's evil. And they're actually worshiping demons. Now, this last description that he gives us in this order of angels, it's not really a ranking here, the last one, the fourth one. Spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's just summarizing what all of these demons are. They're spiritual forces, and they do wickedness, And they're not something you can see, touch, or feel. They're in the spiritual places. They're in the heavenlies. They come from there, the heavenly places. That's also where Christ reigns and where he rules. So right now, he's given them freedom. Why? That's for really another sermon. But they're not flesh and blood. You can't even see them. You can only see their influence with others, their influence upon others. So can Christians be demon-possessed? That's often a question you hear. Can Christians be demon-possessed? That's a word used in the Scripture, demon-possessed. And I would say no. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. And nothing else can occupy that space that the Holy Spirit is taking up, which is all of you. If you're a believer, the Spirit owns you. He's in you. That's part of the new covenant. God put him in you. And there's no indication in Scripture that a believer could ever be demon-possessed. Can they be influenced? Yeah, sure they can. That's this whole passage right here. Paul's saying, stand firm. Don't be influenced. Don't give ground. Not taken over. Possession indicates taking over, ownership. We're slaves of Christ. He just covered that in chapter 6. He says, we're slaves of Christ. We can't be owned by anyone else. Should we be doing exorcism then? A lot of... Groups out there practice exorcism, casting out demons. Jesus did it. The apostles did it with Christ's power. Well, that was an apostolic sign. That was to show people that they had the same power that Christ had. He had given it to them. That was a sign. We're no longer commanded in Scripture anywhere 
believers are not commanded to cast out demons. If there was casting out of demons, this would be the perfect place to put it right here in Ephesians 6. Instructions on how to do it. Even in the book of Acts, it just says it happened. It doesn't say how they did it. It doesn't give instructions on how to do it. And don't think that you can go and exercise demons. You want to have an effect on demonic power? Live a holy life, put on the armor of God, and preach the gospel. Demons hate that when somebody gets converted. If somebody, if an unbeliever is demon-possessed, and God takes the demon out and converts them, then you've done some work. So preach the gospel. Don't try to exercise demons. Last question is when? When does this battle take place? And I'm going to tell you it's every day, but it's also when, when the battle is fierce. Every day you might think the battle's fierce, but there are certain days you know harder than others. There are days when you know Satan is really attacking you. So Paul says in verse 13, he, he brings us back to the point, take up the full armor of God. Therefore, take it up. Because Satan is attacking you, his demons are attacking take it up. He's restating the command that he used in verse 10, but he, he's using a different verb here. Take it up. You've got to pick it up. You've got to put it on. You've got to do something. There's a sense of urgency here. Don't put it off tomorrow, next week. You know, I'll get more holy next month. Not such a good month for me to be holy. Take it up now. Sanctification requires you to do the work that God's already planned for you, and He's given you all the resources to do. Why? Why do it, Paul? Because, he says, something is going on here. You will be able to resist in the evil day. When does this battle occur? In the evil day. Well, the evil day is every day. Go back to chapter 5, verse 16. He says we're to make the most of our time because the days are evil. So every day is evil because Satan is controlling the world. You can live a holy life today, but in general, the world is tending towards evil. So every day there are evils. Every day you've got to stand firm. Every day you've got to fight and resist. But some days are more evil than others. Some days are harder. Some days we've definitely got to be prepared and ready and fight all day long. Sometimes that's because physically you don't feel up for life today. And Satan's going to know that. He sees you sick. He sees that you're weak. He sees that you and your spouse have been fighting. If it's not him, then it's one of his demons. Uh, He sees that you're not healthy. He sees that you've got that bad news that got delivered to you. He knows. And so he is going to come hard at you then. Because that's the time when you're going to say, you know what, it doesn't matter. Life's not going well anyway. I might as well sin. And you don't even think about it. You just follow right along with Satan's plans. So be able to resist in the evil day. All days are evil, but especially those days where he's attacking you. And having done everything, stand firm. So he's picking that stand firm up again. He'll pick it up again in the next verse, talking about the armor of God. But having done everything, having made all the preparations, don't try to stand against the devil before you've made preparations, before you put on the armor. You're going to lose. Having done, the tense here is something that's already been prepared and done and made ready. Now stand firm. Well, let's look at some general categories of schemes. So Paul tells us the what, how, why, when. 
let's think about these strategies as Satan is coming at us. Some general categories. I don't know your temptations. I don't know the sins you struggle with. But here's some general categories. First of all, false teaching. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, this is Satan's masterpiece. If he can but keep them from believing the truth, he is sure to keep them from obeying it. If you don't even know the truth, you can't obey the truth. And that's the danger of false teaching. For the true believer, for the cultural Christian who's not a true believer, that, that's a real issue because false teaching is making them think they're saved, but leading them to hell. Jesus said in John eight forty four that Satan is the murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan develops all these false teachings. If you look at church history, they come in early and they keep coming back all the time, all the time. False teaching never seems to die. They pervert Christian doctrine. Demons love to do that. They use people to do that. Colossians 2.18, let no one, Paul says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. What's your prize? Your reward, your heavenly reward. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. That's whipping yourself physically. I'm going to be more holy if I physically hurt myself. Medieval times, the monks would go out. They would get in a freezing stream on a cold day. See how long they could stand it. They would whip themselves with whips on the back and worse things. They would not eat for days just to try to make them more holy. Paul says, don't let people fool you with that. And he says, the worship of angels. Fallen angels. Don't think that angels are so powerful that you should worship them. Taking his stand on visions he has seen. People are seeing visions out there and they come to tell you that they've seen a vision and you better listen and you better believe. And they write books about it and they make millions of dollars and whole Christian groups follow them. Paul says, don't believe in that. Inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. It's demonic. They also pervert sanctification. It's called legalism. Look at 1 Timothy 4. You see, you think false teaching is just that church down the road that preaches the prosperity gospel. And that is false teaching. But there's types of false teaching that can slip into even a biblical believing mindset, church, household. 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says, so the Holy Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. As time goes on, as the church goes on, until Christ comes back, people are going to start to fall away from the faith more and more. How? By paying attention to deceitful spirits. That's demonic spirits, evil spirits. They're paying attention to them and they're learning the doctrines of demons. Sometimes people laugh, you know, false teaching, that just comes from man's own mind and man's heart. No, it's demonically inspired. And now he tells us what that is. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, they're hypocrites, they're liars, they've seared their own conscience, he says, with a branding iron. Here's what they teach. They forbid marriage. They advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. 
They tell you, you can't eat this. You can't touch this. You can't drink this. Are you going to hell? They tell you that you can't be married. You can't enjoy the things of this life that God has given that are good. It's all about beating yourself, whipping yourself, being legalistic, making others follow that same pattern. That's perverting sanctification. That's false teaching. They also, on the other hand, pervert Christian liberty. So yeah, we can eat these things. But is it always wise to do so? Can we make another brother stumble? Can we go so far with our liberty that then we cross the line into sin? Peter says, yeah, 2 Peter 2.18, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they, the false teachers, entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So the teachers come along, the false teachers, and they say, you want freedom? You can do whatever you want in Christ. We're all free. Do what you want. Do what feels good. God's grace, let it abound all the more. He'll forgive you. Don't worry about it. Do what you want. And Peter says, you'll be enslaved. They also pervert the gospel of God's grace. That's a major false teaching. You can't even be saved if you don't believe the gospel. In Galatians 1, you can read all about how they've changed the gospel there to something different. The false teachers have added laws. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to be a Jew before you can become a Christian. Number two, temptation to sin. This is obvious. What are the schemes? He wants to tempt you to sin. He knows your sin. He will tempt you where you're the weakest. He knows your defenses. If you put on the armor of God, you're fully defended. If you don't, he knows where you're weak and he's going right there. James chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You know what causes you to sin? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. You want what you want. And James says, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Selfish desires, where do they come from? They come from your own heart and mind, but they're also demonic. They're of a demonic influence. Don't be tempted to sin. Put on the armor of God. Stand firm against that temptation. Thirdly, just real quick, continuing to beat yourself up when you have sin. Satan loves that. He loves when you do sin for you to continue to doubt your salvation, to think that God can't forgive you, to continue to worry and worry and fuss and worry. When it's clear in Scripture, you you repent, you come back, confess your sins. But I've seen believers sometimes who just go on and on about their sins. If you have repented, if you've gone to the person and asked for forgiveness that you sinned against, have you taken it to the Lord? It's done. Move on and work now on not doing that again. And then number four, the emotional state. Can demons depress you? Can they influence you? Does Satan want you depressed? Does he want you down? Does he want you anxious? Of course he does. That's one of his tactics. You remember the boy who was constantly being thrown in the fire by a demon? He was trying to get that boy to basically commit suicide, to kill that boy? Of course, Satan loves to play on your emotions. He loves it. And then lastly, number five, just distractions from living a godly life. You're not tempted to sin. He can't get you there. You won't listen to false teaching. You've dealt with your sin the right way. 
Emotionally, you're trusting in the Lord. You're relying upon his strength. But he will distract you. Pastor Adrian Rogers, famous quote that's often used, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. He'll just keep you busy, keep you distracted. Hebrews 12.1 talks about laying aside every encumbrance that slows us down from running the race. There are things that don't entangle us like sins and make us fall, but they just slow us down. They just weigh us down. There's a lot of weight on our shoulders, so we run slower. Distractions. And Satan has been really good at distracting us in the modern world. He keeps us distracted very well. Lots of things that on the surface, these things are good, but then we use them to distract from living a godly life. I just don't have time to read my Bible. I just don't have time to pray. I just don't have time for it. You've had time for other things, many other things. So let's stand firm. Let's win the spiritual battle. Next week, we'll, we'll look at the different pieces and what they mean. And so you want to make sure and be here for that because those are key and there's a lot of different interpretations on what those pieces of armor are. So come back next week. We'll work through that passage. You'll know how to put those on, where to find them. Let's ask the Lord's help in this fight, in this battle. Lord, we ask that you would help us. It's your armor that you've given us. You've created it for us. You've given us all the resources. You've won the victory, but we still have to fight day by day. Not to win, you've already done that, but just to not give ground to what you've already given us. We look forward to, we long for when you come back, Christ, and you, you set all things right, and this battle is no longer with us. We can live completely unencumbered from sin. But until then, Lord, give us the strength and remind us of the armor that you have laid at our feet to pick up and put on every day. Let us put it on, keep it on, and continually understand how to use it. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen.